Robert Berdella was one of the most brutal serial killers in U.S. history who participated in despicable acts of sexual torture and murder in Kansas City, Missouri between 1984 and 1987. Berdella was born in 1949 in Ohio. His family was Catholic, but Robert left the church when he was in his teens. As a child, Berdella was intelligent, but he was a loner who rarely played outside of his home and seldom had friends uh, visit to socialize. He also had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses from the age of five because he was severely nearsighted. Through all that, Berdella proved to be a good student, despite suffering from severe nearsightedness, though teachers often found him difficult to teach, in part both uh, due both to his aloofness. Uh, to see, he had to wear thick glasses, and because of that, it made him vulnerable to being bullied by his peers. And because of this, he chose not to socialize among his peers. He was also diagnosed with high blood pressure, for which he took several medications. That being said, Berdella was largely unathletic, whereas his younger brother Daniel, seven years his junior, displayed an aptitude for various sports from an early age. As Berdella's father valued sports and physical education, he viewed his son's lack of interest in sports as a sign of failure and often compared him unfavorably with his younger brother. Occasionally, Berdella's father physically and emotionally abused his children and beat them with a leather strap. When Berdella reached puberty, he discovered at that time that he was homosexual. Initially, he kept this fact a closely guarded secret, and he did not become open about his sexuality for several years. Nonetheless, in his early teens, he briefly had a girlfriend. By his mid-teens, Berdella had begun to display a degree of self-confidence, which would often manifest itself via his attitude to other individuals in which he would exert a somewhat rude and condescending attitude, particularly towards women. He learned about cooking and art and developed showmanship. In fact, on Christmas Day of 1965, the, fa the Berdella fa family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit relatives. That evening, Berdella's father had a heart attack at the age of 39. Two days later, Berdella returned to his hometown by himself. When he arrived home, his family had told him that his father had died. Berdella sought solace in his religion and later read extensively about many faiths. But after all that, he became cynical about all religion. In 1965, Berdella saw the film adaption of John Foles' book, The Collector. The plot of this movie revolves around a man who stalks and abducts a young woman he finds attractive and holds her captive in a windowless stone basement, viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. After several weeks, a woman dies of a contracted illness despite her captor's efforts to keep her alive. Berdella later stated this movie had formed a lasting impression on him. Shortly after the death of Berdella's father, his mother would remarry. This act was met with resentment by her elder son, who viewed the move as a form of betrayal against his father. And as a result, Berdella became increasingly withdrawn and further immersed himself in the solitary activities which he had participated in since childhood, such as painting, collecting coins and stamps, and writing to foreign pen pals. Berdella would later claim that his hobby of writing to pen pals in countries such as Vietnam and Burma and the fact that these pen pals would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of mythical and historical icons, ancient cultures and architecture, 
all of which led to his developing an avid interest in primitive art, photographs, and antiques. From 1965, approximately, he would begin avidly collecting these artifacts, and uh, this pr practice would later on inspire him to open a business somewhere around 1982. In the summer of 1967, Robert graduated high school. Throughout his studies in high school, he earned such excellent grades and displayed such potential that in 1966, one teacher had placed him in an independent study program. Shortly after graduation, Bradella relocated to Kansas City. It was there that he would enroll in the Kansas City Art Institute with aspirations of becoming a college professor. In his first year at the Kansas City Art Institute, Bradella was considered an attentive and talented student, although by his second year in art school, he became vocally anti-authoritarian. He also became acquainted with a clique of students who supplied him with drugs, which he then sold to other students at profit. As such, he acquired a reputation among his fellow students as a minor drug dealer. In addition, he began regularly abusing alcohol. He also engaged in acts of animal torture on at least three occasions while a student at the Kansas City Art Institute. Now, during two of these instances, he tortured a duck and a chicken in the presence of his peers, and in the third instance, he experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. Now, at the ripe age of 19, he began a popular extracurricular activity, and that would be using and selling drugs. He would even be arrested for attempting to sell methamphetamines to an undercover officer. He was released after posting a $3,000 bond. That's equivalent to about $22,000 in 2020. And he would later plead guilty to the offense and was handed a five-year suspended sentence. One month after his arrest, Berdella and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. It was on this occasion that Berdella could not post bond, and he spent five days in jail. Although the charges against him and one of the other students would be dropped due to lack of evidence. Regardless, the Art Institute wanted him out. You know, the drug charges were one thing. It was the 1960s, for that matter, and drug use on an art school campus, well, it was common. But Berdella's art, on the other hand, had become increasingly disturbing. And it was due to those three different performances where he had killed animals, including the dog on stage, that would ultimately force Berdella out of the Kansas City Art Institute in 1969 when he would uh, go ahead and request to disenroll. After all this, you would expect that Berdella would possibly move away from Kansas City, but he didn't. He chose to remain there, and he bought a modest three-story house at 4315 Charlotte Street. The eclectic Westport neighborhood suited his personality and was welcoming to gays like himself. You see, by this stage, Berdella had already been openly gay for several years. There, he worked as a cook, ran his curio shop out of the Westport flea market, and volunteered with it in the community. He befriended sex workers, drug addicts, and petty criminals, the people that, you know, the rest of society had abandoned. These individuals he would typically befriend, and then he would try to help them uh, free their lives from uh, drug addictions and general lethargic or criminal lifestyles. And he was also adamant that throughout much of the 1970s that he would have no physical contact whatsoever with any of these individuals. In fact, many of these folks considered him somewhat of a sort of a foster father. But by the early 1980s, many of his older acquaintances had ceased any form of social contact with him. 
Now, with Bardella increasingly relying on these younger men as a source of companionship and friendship, he would retrospectively claim to have become increasingly frustrated at many of these individuals ignorance to his efforts to assist them to steer their lifestyles away from harm and deterioration. Now, despite these later claims to investigators, Bordello would often engage in sexual relations with several of these individuals and would establish a degree of control over them, in part to engage in their sexual relations via methods including loaning them money and allowing them to live rent-free at his house for periods of time. To his neighbors, Bordello was considered a flamboyant yet helpful and civic-minded individual, despite the generally unkept state of his property and his somewhat haughty attitude. Beginning in the 1970s, late 1970s, Bordello would assist in the organizational activities of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association. In fact, he became their chairman in the early 1980s and encouraged neighborhood watch patrols. He remained active in this association until the mid-1980s, where he would relinquish his position within the organization. Bordello would also represent his neighborhood at fundraising events for uh, for a local public uh, television station, although he would also disengage himself from these events by the mid-1980s. Both his career and side business gradually flourished, and by the mid-1970s, Bordello became, excuse me, began working as a senior cook at several renowned Kansas City restaurants. He had made a name for himself, and he was also joining a local uh, chefs Association and helping establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college. Simultaneously, as he was doing all this, his own business began to burgeon. He began to devote more of his attention to his own business as opposed to his work as a chef. By 1981, he had established several contractual agreements with both national and international contacts for his own business. He viewed his business as a full-time job and would later cease working as a chef. In 1982, Bradella began renting his own booth at the Westport Flea Market. The store was named Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, and primarily sold and traded primitive art, jewelry, and antiques. Although occasionally making a generous monthly profit, the income he typically generated via this business was often not sufficient to maintain his daily expenses and to make ends meet. As a result, Bordello would occasionally have to either sell goods to fellow merchants at a financial loss or steal or scavenge for items to sell at his booth. Additionally, he would often take lodgers at his home as a means of gaining additional income. At his work premises, Bordello became acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howe, who operated a booth adjacent to his own. Soon, Bordello became acquainted with Paul Howe's younger son, Jerry. The younger Hal was a sex worker, and Bordello would occasionally help him when he had run-ins with the law. Now, initially, Jerry Hal and his friends scathed and taunted Bordello over his overt homosexuality, although according to Bordello, Jerry Hal later confided in him that he and his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. By the early 1980s, Paul Howe had relocated his business from Westport Flea Market to a store within a building located close to the intersection of 39th and Main Street. His family had also moved into an apartment above the shop, and despite his younger son occasionally engaging in heated arguments with Bordella, they would invariably reignite a casual friendship, often via Bordella offering his legit or financial assistance should Jerry encounter minor scrapes with the law. By the summer of 1984, Jerry Howe had turned 19. 
That July, Berdella offered him a ride to a dance in nearby Miriam. Jerry Howe would never be seen again. Berdella is believed to have killed his first victim on July 5th of 1984. His first known victim was 19-year-old Jerry Howe, with whom he had become closely reacquainted in the year prior to his murder and whom he abducted on the promise of driving the youth to attend a dancing contest in Miriam. According to Berdella, he plied Howe with alcohol, Valium, and other drugs both in his car and his house until the youth become unconscious. He then injected Howe with a heavy tranquilizer before binding the youth to his bed. Howe was restrained to Berdella's bed for a period of approximately 28 hours. It was throughout this period of captivity that Berdella repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped, and violated him with foreign objects. Repeatedly ignoring Howe's intermittent questioning as to why he was being treated in this manner and pleading to be freed before, according to Berdella, Jerry either asphyxiated on his own vomit or a combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch his breath. Berdella would later state that he briefly attempted to perform CPR upon Howe after he had died before dragging his body to the basement. It was then that he suspended Howe's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions to the youth's inner elbows and jugular vein before leaving the body suspended in this position overnight to allow the blood to drain from his corpse. The following day, he dismembered Howe's body using a chainsaw and boning knives before wrapping the sections in newspaper and trash bags. These bags were later placed inside a larger trash bag, which Berdella placed outside for a garbage crew to collect and take to the landfill. Later questioned by officers investigating Howe's disappearance, Berdella claimed to have driven the youth to Miriam as promised, and that the two had parted company close to Howe's intended destination. Berdella further claimed that he had not seen him since. As would be the case with Berdella's murders, he kept a detailed log in which he documented each act of sexual and physical torture inflicted upon his victim. Berdella would recall that, like the subsequent victims he would hold captive, Howe had repeatedly pleaded for his ongoing abuse and torture to cease throughout the period of his capture, although Berdella would either ignore these pleas, taunt his victim, or threaten him. He would remain adamant to investigators that this would not be for his enjoyment, but rather what he termed as physical and mental satisfaction. In April of the following year, 23-year-old Robert Sheldon, a former boarder of Berdella, showed up looking for a place to stay for a few days. Like Hal, that was the last time he would be seen alive. It was on April 10, 1985, that Sheldon arrived on his doorstep asking if he could again stay at his house for a short period of time. According to Berdella, although Sheldon was responsible in paying rent, he considered him an inconvenience. And although he was not physically attracted to this victim, he chose to drug and hold him captive on April 12th when he returned home from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his home. Berdella was adamant that he held no malice towards Sheldon, but saw him as an individual upon whom he could express some of the anger and frustration that he had towards other people. Sheldon was drugged with sedatives and held captive in the second floor bedroom for three days, enduring forms of torture such as swabbing of drain cleaner in his left eye, the insertion of needles beneath his fingertips, the binding of his wrist with piano wire with the intention of permanently damaging the nerves in his hands, and filling his ears with caulking to reduce his hearing capacity. 
Three days after Berdella had begun holding Sheldon captive on April 15th, a workman came to perform some scheduled work on the roof of his home, leading Berdella to choose to fatally suffocate Sheldon by placing a sack over his head, which he then tightened with a piece of rope. He also would later dis- dissect Sheldon's body in the third floor uh, bedroom. Just a couple months later, in June of 1985, a young man named Mark Wallace ducked into Berdella's garage to escape a sudden thunderstorm. The two had met previously when Wallace had done some yard work for Berdella. Berdella invited the 20-year-old into his house, and again, Wallace was never seen again. As had been the case with Robert Sheldon, Berdella invited him inside of his house, and noting Wallace's acute state of tenseness and depression, he volunteered to inject him with some drugs with the explanation that this would calm him down and allow him to relax. Wallace willingly accepted the offer, and 30 minutes later, Berdella decided to render him captive. Wallace was carried to the second-floor bedroom, where he endured almost a day of captivity and torture, including the application of alligator clips to his nipples to facilitate electrical shocks to his body at any point at which Wallace began regressing into a state of unconsciousness. According to Berdella, one hour after his experimenting with hypodermic needles by inserting them into various muscles upon the victim's back, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs, the gag, and lack of oxygen. He noted the victim's time of death as being 7 p.m. on June 23rd. In late September, another of his old boarders would come back into the picture. Uh, it was, in fact, it'd be on September 26th of 1985 that <clears throat> Berdella would answer a phone call from an acquaintance named James Ferris, who asked to stay at Berdella's home for a short period of time. Berdella accepted with the specific intention of kidnapping Ferris, whom he had arranged to meet at a bar that evening. However, unlike Sheldon and Wallace, Ferris's disappearance, along with Howe's, was reported to the police. Another of Berdella's former boarders, a drug addict named Tom Todd Stoops, told police both of the men had been last seen with Berdella. When questioned, Berdella claimed that he had known both of them but hadn't seen them in a while. He said he had dropped off Jerry at a dance and hadn't seen him since. He was uh, indignant at being questioned and refused to answer any more questions without a lawyer. So when police put him under surveillance, he threatened to file a harassment suit. With no other evidence to go on, the cases went cold. Just to be safe, police told Stoops that he should not go to Berdella's house anymore. Now, despite the brutality to which he had subjected his first three victims, Berdella claimed that Ferris was the first victim upon which he intentionally inflicted torture. He also informed investigators that there were occasions during his final three victims' period of captivity where he ceased making additions to his uh, abuse logs because he assumed the victim would not be able to make it much longer. Berdella brought Ferris home and drugged him with crushed tranquilizers, which he had concealed in a meal, and then he tied him to his bed before torturing him almost constantly for 27 hours. The torture included repeated administering of 7,700-volt electrical shocks to the shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes at a time. It also included acupuncture via hypodermic needles to the neck and genitals. Ferris gradually became delirious. But Berdella continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds. The next entry read, very delayed breathing, and finally Berdella noted that Ferris had died with a slang term that he used in his career as a chef, 86, 
which Berdella later explained meant anything from throw it out to stop the project. Then, in June of 1986, Stoops would run into Burdell at a local park. Burdell invited Stoops over to his house for lunch and possibly sex. Now, forgetting or ignoring that the police had warned Stoops not to, to, to visit Burdell, he accepted the offer. And he became one more young man who seemed to drop off the face of the earth. Todd Stoops was a 23-year-old drug addict and sometimes prostitute who, alongside his wife, had twice lived briefly at Berdella's house in 1984. After Stoops and his wife moved out of Berdella's home the second time, Berdella did not see him again until June 17th of 86. Now, again, Berdella invited him to his house with an offer for lunch and, you know, the added incentive of sex, as Stoops stated that he needed $13 to purchase drugs. That'd be the equivalent to about $31 in today's uh, time period. Now, Berdella would later stress to investigators that he had been extremely physically attracted to Stoops, and this victim was held captive for two weeks before he died, with him gradually increasing his captive's terror to make him a cooperative and incapacitated sex slave. Berdella used electrical shocks throughout Stoops' close, uh, or Stoops' uh, captivity. Stoops closed eyes in an attempt to blind him and injected uh, a drain cleaner into his, uh, to his throat to silence his screaming. But it was during the second week of his capture that Stoops asked Berdella for a soft drink and a sandwich. When Berdella refused, Stoops burst into tears. On June 27th, he ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. Towards the end of Stoops' captivity, he tried to feed his captive ice cream and soup. But unfortunately, at that point in time, Stoops wasn't able to keep anything down. And by the final day of his captivity, Stoops was so weak that Berdella later stated that he had been unable to breathe in a sitting position. On July 1st, 1986, Stoops died. A forensics pathologist later testified that the ruptured anal wall caused septic shock and proved to be fatal. In the spring of 1987, Burdella made a new friend, Larry Wayne Pearson, who had wandered into Burdella's shop and expressed an interest in witchcraft and the occult. The two became friends, and Pearson moved in with Burdella. The young man would work off his rent by doing chores around the house and helping around the shop. However, Pearson could not stay out of trouble and was arrested for some petty offenses in June of that year. Burdella bailed him out, and Pearson was never heard from again. According to Berdella, he did not initially intend to capture this individual, but formed the plan to do so on June 23rd when having Bell Pearson out of jail. The young man began jokingly referring to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. That evening, Berdella ensured Pearson became intoxicated before injecting him with drugs and moving him down to his basement where he bound Pearson's hands above his head and linked the rope that he had used for this purpose to a brick column before injecting Pearson's throat with drain cleaner. He then brought an electrical transformer to the basement. It was according to Burdella that Pearson was by far the most cooperative of his six murder victims. On the fifth day of his captivity, Having by this stage endured torture such as the repeated administration of electrical shocks with the transformer and the breaking of several hand bones with an iron rod to render him submissive, Berdella deduced 
Pearson had earned his trust as to continue cooperation in his sexual and physical abuse. Now, for whatever reason, as some form of a reward, Pearson was moved to the second floor, with Berdella first informing Pearson that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain upon him as he had done so when he had been held captive in the basement. It was throughout the latter part of his six weeks of captivity that Pearson trained himself to sleep without moving, in order that he did not antagonize Berdella and thus invite further torture or being returned to the basement. After the six weeks of captivity, in an act of despair, Pearson deeply bit into Berdella's penis before screaming he could not continue to tolerate being treated in this manner. In response, Berdella killed Pearson by first bludgeoning him into unconsciousness with a tree limb. Then he suffocated him with a bag and ligature before driving to the hospital to receive treatment for his wound. Pearson's body was later dismembered in the basement, his head initially stored in a plastic bag inside Berdella's freezer before being buried in the backyard. Other than Hal and Ferris, None of the men were reported missing, but among the transients, sex workers, and underground community in general, their absence was noticed. Rumors began swirling around uh, Berdella. Several sex workers who had gone to Berdella's house told friends that he was a mean trick, tying them up, injecting them with drugs, and inflicting pain through various cruel methods. And... Some of these sex workers claimed that they had seen some of the missing men's belongings in the house. But, probably afraid of being arrested themselves, none of them went to the police. In 1988, a lot of folks in the Westport neighborhood of Kansas City, Missouri, knew Robert Berdella. He was a bit of an oddball. But you see, in this part of town, that wasn't so shocking. In fact, Berdella seemed to fit right into the eclectic community. At 1 a.m. on March 29th of 1988, Berdella abducted his last victim, a 22-year-old male prostitute named Christopher Bryson, whom he had lured to his house upon the promise of payment for sex. While at Berdella's home, Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar, then bound to Berdella's bed, where he was subjected to similar methods of abuse, abuse and torture uh, endured by previous victims. Although in Bryson's case, Berdella repeatedly swabbed his eyes with ammonia before exclaiming to him, the only things that you need to think about are you, me, and this house. After several days, Berdella explained to Bryson he had began to trust his captive and that although he was willing to discuss aspects aspects of the abuse and torture he was receiving, there would be no negotiations pertaining to his sexual abuse. Berdella finished his discussion with a stern warning. He said, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. By the third day of his capture, Bryson had earned sufficient trust from Berdella to persuade him to establish a daily regime of tying his hands in front of him after his sexual abuse rather than above his head into the bed upon the excuse that Berdella's doing so was restricting the circulation to his arms. 
He had also persuaded Berdella to leave a television on within the room, with the remote control placed between his legs whenever Berdella was out of the room. However, he would later state to investigators that he had thought almost constantly about escaping. The following day, he managed to break free of his restraints by burning through them using a book of matches that Berdella had invertedly left in the room and within his reach when he had left the house to go to his place of work. It was on April the 2nd, 1988, that a meter reader working on Charlotte Street saw something shocking. A naked man leaping out of a second-story window. The man was Chris Bryson. He ran to a neighbor's house. He was bruised and bloody and had a dog collar around his neck. His eyes were red and swollen, and he didn't seem as though he could see well. The neighbors called the Kansas City Police Department. When they arrived, Bryson told them a tale that they could barely believe. He said he had been hitchhiking near the Greyhound bus station when a man in a brown Toyota Tercel picked him up and offered to take him to a party. Later, he would admit he was engaging in sex work and the man had picked him up for a date. Bryson accepted and he went with the man to his house at 4315 Charlotte Street. He said that the man who called himself Bob told him to go upstairs, away from his dogs. Bryson said that he walked up the stairs in front of Bob, and just as he reached for the landing, he was knocked out. He said that when he came to, he was chained up in the basement, and over the next four days, Bob would rape him repeatedly, beat him with a metal pipe, electrocute him, and inject him with sedatives. When Bryson screamed, Bob injected drain cleaner into his throat. He also dabbed something caustic like alcohol or ammonia into Bryson's eyes. Bryson said that Bob had shown him Polaroid pictures of men who appeared to be dead and told Bryson that if he didn't cooperate, he would end up in the trash just like them. After the first couple of days, Bryson had gained Bob's trust, so Bob took the man upstairs and tied him to the bed there. The rape and torture continued, but in between, Bryson was allowed to watch TV and have his hands tied in front of him rather than above him. And it was on the fourth day when Bryson thought his captor had left the house that he noticed a book of matches on the floor nearby. He would use those to burn through the ropes, not knowing for sure if Bob was home or not. He only thought his, his, he thought his only chance of escape was through the second story window. And so he leapt through, leapt through the glass, cutting himself and breaking a bone in his foot when he landed. Now, seeing the man's condition, the police had every reason to believe him. So while Bryson was taken to a nearby hospital for treatment, the police waited for Berdella to come home. When he arrived to see police at the house, Berdella seemed surprised. He was arrested, but refused to let them search his home. What they do? They obtained a search warrant. And when police tried to enter the Berdella home, they were greeted by two angry chows. Once animal services had gotten the dogs away safely, then the police could enter. Immediately, they knew that searching his house would be a challenge. You see, it was stacked floor to ceiling with boxes, magazines, clothes, and strange random items. Not to mention there was dog feces everywhere. In the second floor bedroom, they found the evidence corroborating Bryson's report a blood-stained bed with burnt ropes on it, 
And next to the bed were a metal pole, a tray of hypodermic needles, and swabs of and swabs and eyedroppers. On the floor nearby was an electrical transformer with clamps on the end of its wires. But that was not all that they had found. Luminol tests showed massive amounts of blood, especially in the basement and the bathtub. And just as Bryson had said, there was a cache of more than 350 Polaroids showing young men in various stages of torture and sexual assault. And some of them appeared to be dead. Amongst all the clutter, they also found two human skulls, an envelope full of human teeth, and what looked or appeared to be like a human vertebrae. The skulls would be analyzed by a forensic anthropologist, and one was determined to be a high-quality fake, much like the ones Burdell had sold at his store. But the other was very much real, and had belonged to a young man who had died about a year ago. Dental records would show that the skull belonged to Robert Sheldon. The vertebrae had been cut with a hacksaw and a knife, and although someone had decapitated the victim, indeed police found a hacksaw, miter saw, and chainsaw on the property. The chainsaw in particular had blood and tissue and human hair on it. Now, with all this evidence that murders had taken place at Bradella's home, police got a warrant to dig up the property. In the backyard, they found another human skull and a small bone fragment, and that skull would later be identified as Larry Pearson's. Most damning of all, on top of the dresser, they found a steno book in Berdella's writing. In it, he had made detailed logs of the torture and killing of each of his victims. The Kansas City Police Department formed a task force to dig into Berdella's past and try to identify the men shown in the photos. Many of them corresponded to men who had gone missing since 1984. However, with only the remains of these men, it would be hard to charge him with any others. So prosecutors went ahead and with the two that they knew that they could prove to a jury. On July 22, 1988, Burdella was charged with the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. The following month, at his indictment for the murder of Robert Sheldon, he shocked the court by pleading guilty. His attorney arranged a plea deal, where in exchange for his confession, he would not be sentenced to death. Berdella confessed to the murders of six men, all between the ages of 18 and 21, beginning in 1984. In each one, the details of how he lured them in and what exact methods of torture he used differed. But the overall modus operandi was the same. Once they were in his house, he would either drug them or knock them out and then tie them up. He would, over the course of hours or days, repeatedly rape and torture them much as he had done to Bryson. Some of them died from his abuse. Some he killed by suffocation with a plastic bag or a garret. And once his victims were dead, he would hoist them up over a spot in the basement or the bathtub, slit their veins, and let the blood drain out. And when that was done, he would dismember the part, the body with various instruments, including saws seized by police, and put the pieces in plastic bags, and he would put out the rest of the garbage. Literally just threw them away in the garbage. Berdella would be sentenced to two life sentences, with absolutely no possibility for parole. It was while incarcerated that he rallied against the media for dehumanizing him. 
saying that he was really a good person who had just made a few mistakes. He also filed several lawsuits against the prison for mistreatment. From behind bars, he arranged to sell his massive hoard in a series of auctions. The appraiser in charge of it called it the mind-boggling accumulation of about 2,000 rare antiquities, ordinary house goods, and an uncountable assortment of egregious junk. The bulk of the estate included the house on on Charlotte Street was purchased by the flamboyant former bank robber and millionaire industrialist Del Dunmeyer, who had it demolished. In the fall of 1982, or excuse me, in the fall of 1992, Berdella wrote to a minister who had befriended him, complaining that the prison officials weren't giving him his heart medication. Then abruptly, on October the 8th, 1992, when he was 43 years old, Berdella suffered a heart attack and died. He had served less than four years of his sentence. Now, despite whether or not prison officials had been giving his medicine, his mistreatment or claim to mistreatment was far less than that of the six victims that he tortured, brutally tortured, and murdered. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.